The topic on the hard question today, it's going to be kind of a broad topic covering the Hispanic slash Latino community, because it is very important to understand the complicated, I would say the complicated community that is often made to look like it's just one group of people and variety of interests don't seem to bring up the uh, the complications that involve this, this incredible community. A good friend of mine that I'm so happy to welcome back is Mario Lopez, the president of the Hispanic Leadership Fund. It's an advocacy organization promoting liberty, opportunity, and prosperity for all in public policy. He's had that great job. What is it, 14 years now, Mario? It's been a while. Yep, working on 14 years. And well, welcome back. Um, you know, you wrote a great article talking about the fiduciary rule. And I was trying to investigate it because I'm trying to remember when this rule was considered in the Congress and then some people blew it off. Explain it, first of all, to the audience so they can understand the impact and the impact of the Hispanic community. Yes, thank you, Monkita. Always great to, to talk to you. Um, and thanks for having me on. So. The fiduciary rule was first, it was something first uh, cooked up under the Obama administration for the Department of Labor. And what it is, it sounds very simple and something that most people could support when you first listen to what they say, which is that they want financial advisors for clients of certain investment vehicles to um, have, to always have the best interests of their clients in mind. And when you put it that way, it sounds great. You know, I mean, sign me up. Um, I'm sure that many of your readers would agree. The problem is, like with a lot of government regulations, is that when you scratch the surface, um, just beyond that, just the, that initial presentation, and you look at how they try to accomplish this, it becomes very evident very quickly that this is a bad idea. And so what happens is, they write these regulations and they end up cutting off the people who they say they wanna protect, who are mostly low and middle income individuals. They cut those people off from receiving certain types of information from their financial advisors. And so the effect of that is that their investment retire, their, their investments in their retirement funds um, are hurt. They don't grow as quickly because people don't have access to this information and therefore can't make the best decisions for themselves and for their families as they try to save for retirement. Okay, so, well now let me let me stop you because as you're explaining this, you know, I'm I'm a bit of a skeptic when people say that they kind of know more about my best interests than I do. So consequently, you want to know, they're saying, it's kind of in a way you wonder, are they patting you on the head and saying, don't worry, we'll take care of you. And uh, when you talk about a certain level of income, do they really have their interests? Are they compromised by the, you know, by what they think the people know or they don't know, like, you know, basically, you're too dumb and too stupid. We know better than you do. So let me take your money and we'll use it to our own ends. What explain that a little better because I'm concerned that uh, there is a political bent in this when Latinos and people of middle income, lower income, they may or may not care about the political aspect of it. It's their money and their future. Right. That's exactly right. Well, there's definitely a, a pedantic 
you know, sort of element underlying all of this, right? Because they want to protect these lower and middle income folks. At least that's what they say. Okay, so, you know, we could take them at their word, let's say, right? That's who they want to protect. But the problem is if they're so blinded by, you know, going after these big, bad financial companies, at least in their view, you know, they're big and bad, um, that they write these regulations in such a way where, again, the financial advisors can't talk to their clients. Last time they did this, 10 million people got a letter from their financial advisors saying, hey, sorry, we can't talk to you anymore about your retirement savings because of this government rule that's been passed recently. And that hurt real people in very real ways. So my organization, the Hispanic Leadership Fund, analyzed what happened in 2016. Um, we saw that the 10 million people were cut off from this information. That hurt their retirement savings to the tune of $140 billion wow. over, over 10 years. And that is just crazy. I mean, that's money that should be. Mario, were they mostly from the Latino or the, the minority community? Were they, where did the, you know, because it, it, that just seems like a, such an outrage. Right. Well, it depends on each company because what happens is to qualify to get fiduciary advice, you normally have to have uh, retirement savings up to, you know, very high levels, right? Sometimes it's a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars Yeah. And I mean, who has couple hundred thousand dollars people who are most of the time have a little bit more income right it's the lower and middle income folks who just haven't gotten that level they're trying to get to that level and we want them to get to that level right. but it's a process to get there it's a road you don't just doesn't happen overnight right um and it's harder for them the irony again to get to that level when they don't have all the information available to them to make the best investment decisions for their own financial future. It's hard to believe that's even legal. Well, they're, that's, they were trying to make it legal. Uh, and in fact, a federal court in 2016 vacated this Obama regulation, basically wiped it off the books. Um, and now the sad part is that there are bureaucrats at the Department of Labor who are trying to revive this and bring it back. Mario, you know, I, before you came on the show, I thought I got to go back and look at how small business is doing in the Latino community, because traditionally, uh, the majority of small business that is operated by Hispanics does very well. And even with COVID and all the problems that we're having with inflation, it still appears that it's doing quite well. Uh, do you believe that the federal government regardless of these are former federal employees, completely understands the community and the, and, and the needs of the community? Or, or are they more interested in the government? They're more interested in their own gains and they talk Hispanic, but really don't get it. Well, when you, it, it's, it's easy to come to that, to the second, <laughs> the second point that, that you mentioned now, um, when you look at regulations like this, right? Because again, who is hurt? It's the very people that they claim that they're trying to help, right? And so it, it just doesn't promote a lot of confidence in the bureaucracy and in the, the machinery of government when you have these people, the lower and middle income parts of the scale saying, hey, you're preventing me from growing my nest egg 
so that I can have a secure financial future. Um, it certainly doesn't doesn't portend well. And as well intentioned, again, as they you know claim to be, um, when you look at the actual data and and the reality of the situation is that they're hurting these these very people. Well, you know, the funny thing is, you made me laugh because I thought of the old saying, "Good intentions pave the road to hell." And so consequently, you know, until I read your article, I hadn't seen a lot uh, in, in print about this or even heard much about it on the air. Um, why is that? I mean, do you think people, are people coming back to you at the Hispanic Leadership Fund and talking to you about this? Well, uh, right now, this is the, the, the updated, so-called updated rule is being talked about in the Department of Labor. So it's not official yet. But all the indications are that they're looking to bring this back. We've been trying to sound the alarm and be on, on the front foot of this to say, hey, guys, don't even do this. You know, um, and we've been talking to members of Congress and anyone who will listen to say, hey, this is a very bad idea. You know, we have this study. Um, we commissioned this uh, analysis by some very incredibly talented and smart economic experts who did all the modeling, done all the econometrics work, and you know things that are way above my pay grade, and um, and analyzed what happened last time, and also took took a look at what would happen if they did this in the future. And so what we found out was that this is going to, if they implement this rule, it's going to increase the racial wealth gap for Blacks and Hispanics in this country by twenty percent. I mean. Is just unbelievable at a time when we should be looking to, you know, bring everyone up to find free market. Well, we're talking about the opposite. Yeah. The, the people are talking about uh, equality. They're talking about trying to, you know, have a certain amount of people in positions that reflect the rest of the country. But if, in fact, the gap is going to be worse, it seems like they're talking you know, on both sides of their mouth. They speak with forked tongue, as they say. Right. Well, that that's exactly right. I mean, that's it's just jaw-dropping to me that um, any regulation that has this negative of a effect in the real world is something that it would even be considered, um, let alone... Well, I'm surprised that you don't have more Latinos uh, on the left or even in the middle that are not joining hands with you on this, Mario, because the Hispanic Leadership Fund is nonpartisan. And that's, are you finding out that on this issue, they just don't want to deal with it? Well, I mean, judging from what happened last time, I mean, a lot of the larger, you know, groups on the left who, you know, um, deal with the Hispanic community and, and, and say that they're looking out for uh, Latinos across the country, were actually on the other side. They wow. were thought that this was a good idea. And well, now hold that um, thought. We're going to continue with that because Mario Lopez is joining me, and he's so interesting. He's the head of the Hispanic Leadership Leadership Fund, but he also spent a lot of time working in the Congress. And I want him to tell me how he works in that environment now to make a difference when the tables have been kind of turned over. I'm Blanquita Cullman. This is the hard question.
Not everything that's reported on television is true, but it ought to be. NTD, a New York-based global television network, is independent, reliable, and fact-based. We don't decide where the news happens. What we do is cover it. Check out NTD and you'll know. We believe in the strength of our nation and the hope in our shared humanity. NTD broadcasts uplifting and inspiring programs that enrich your life and bring you joy. Turn on NTD, America's television legacy in the making. Find your local channel at ntd.com TV or call 680-201-4999 or call 680-201-4999. wonderful friend mario lopez is joining me here on the hard question i have so much to ask the guy he is the president of the hispanic leadership fund and as he's talking about this fiduciary rule that members of the congress and even uh some of the members of the administration want to reinstall that could affect severely the minority community hispanics and blacks Mike, I want to talk to you because you know, understand the Congress just about better than anybody I know. You spent years uh, working in the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, you were the executive director of the Congressional Hispanic Conference. Uh, you worked closely, um, even with the FCC's Advisory Committee on Digital Diversity and Empowerment. You've been in all kinds. You've been a White House liaison back in W's, George W's uh, administration, you know, both sides of the aisle. But things have changed considerably. And we've had COVID and a lot of the members of Congress not letting anyone into their offices or meeting their staff. And things are kind of done um, in ways that it's hard for people to really get a grip on. How do you, how do you explain that to us? Give us the process. Sure. Well, um, certainly Congress has gone through a lot of changes the way we all have, you know, because of the pandemic and, and related situations. Um, and on the one hand, it's made certain things easier, right? Because with video meetings and that, um, it's it's actually uh, been you know, been, been a bit of a facilitator in order to set up these, these quick meetings um, that sometimes, you know, two or three meetings take up an entire day, right? And now you can oftentimes knock those out in, you know, 60, 90 minutes. Um, Doing and, it on Zoom, right? Exactly. And, and, uh, and, and the other platforms as well. And so in that sense, it's, it's easier, but, you know, there's just, there's no substitute for, shaking someone's hand and being there in person and looking someone in the eye, you know, very directly and, and, uh, and, and that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, like everyone else, we're eager to get back to where that's a little bit more the norm. Yeah. But the other thing is, Mario, I mean, forgive me for interrupting, but uh, you had a relationship with these members of the Hispanic conference, the Republican conference. And even those you've known on the democratic side of the aisle, they knew that the eyes of uh, voting Hispanics around the country were looking at them. And right now, is there a sense that they're not there because in the way that they are doing Zoom calls and they don't have the same measure of accountability? It may be more easy to do it, but is it really as beneficial? Well, there is that that disconnect, right? That that I was that I was getting at. I mean, it's 
it's great, right? If this is your only option and if someone's across the country or, you know, long distance, um, that stuff is there. But, um, but there is a little bit of that, that disconnect. But at the end of the day, I mean, I think it has more to do with the policies and the ideas that are being pushed than it does anything else. And that's where I think you've seen some of the numbers for Democrats in the Latino community have dropped pretty significantly, uh, the support has. Um, and so it, it definitely represents an opportunity because I think Democrats have absolutely dropped the ball on a lot of kitchen table issues and are just very focused a lot on these uh, hyper-progressive, very, you know, oftentimes radical kinds of policies that um, that just aren't good for the community. And, and I think people are recognizing that. Let me, let's talk a little bit, you know, we're, I'm going to take you a little side trail, okay? Because we'll come back to the fiduciary uh, rule that may or may not come back into effect. Um, you talk about the issue with the, even the Hispanic Democrats. There was a pretty radical situation that occurred in the Valley of Texas with a Democrat by the name of Henry Cuellar. Henry Cuellar took a very principled position on the issue of undocumented aliens coming across the border because he knew how it affected uh, his constituency, which people again forget that the majority of which are Hispanic Americans. So they went after him. I mean, do you think that there is a problem that the members of the Congress that perhaps reside on the Democratic side of the aisle when it comes to Latinos think that they're all going to vote one way and shut up and be nice? Well, it certainly seems that way, right? I mean, they, they um, and there's a couple of telltale signs. I mean, one of which is that they don't take up these issues. They kind of abandon these kitchen table issues that I was talking about, which are super important to um, a community like Latinos who are, you know, just trying to do what every wave of immigrants has ever done and try to pursue the American dream, right? And build a better life for themselves and their families. Right. Um, so I think that, you know, they tend to get, Democrats have kind of ignored the community and neglected them in certain ways. Um, and, you know, so that, that shows and people get that and they say, hey, wait a minute, you know, what, what about us? What about the things that we're um, looking at? What about um, my kids' education and providing parental choice? Or, um, you know, what about these small businesses that are growing in our community? How do we ease the tax and regulatory burden on them so that they can grow and create jobs and foster opportunity um, and create wealth and all those sorts of things that we want for every community? Well, you know, Mario, uh, you said some things that are very compelling made me think about the pressure that a lot of these members of Congress have from the Latino community. And with the Democratic Party, you know, you have um, uh, the potential here, what is it, 29 members of Congress that are leaving, that are from the Democratic side of the aisle. And um, do you think basically that will make a difference to the future of, of decisions that are going to be rendered that they want to try to get done before they bail out because they may lose their majority? Well, you would think it might, but um, I certainly see no signs of that. I mean, I, I don't see any signs here. It's early in 2022 still, but there just have, haven't been anything, hasn't been anything to that I see to indicate that 
you know, the Democrats are going to buckle down and try to tackle, you know, some of these bread and butter issues. Uh, but, but what I'm talking about is here, you got this idea of trying this impending fiduciary rule decision, okay? And I think a lot of people have suggested that uh, there may be, a, the pressure might be on because they're looking at the clock. And if they can't get this rule implemented before the time they have to run for re-election, it may not happen. For the Latina community, that might be a blessing, but what do you expect on that? Right. Well, that's what we hope to happen. Uh, we hope that, that, you know, members of Congress tell the White House, hey, this is not in our interest, right? Because frankly, it isn't in their interest for a bunch of their constituents to get letters from their financial advisors saying, thanks to this government rule, um, you know, we can't talk to you anymore. So good luck. Well, hold that thought. We'll want to talk to you again, Mario, who is the president of the Hispanic Leadership Fund. Stay with us. I'm Blanquita Cullum. This is The Hard Question. Every 40 seconds in the U.S., a child 18 years and under is abducted. Human trafficking happens in every community, regardless of race, gender, culture, or socioeconomic status. I'm Andy Berger, founder and chair of Voices Against Trafficking. My passion to turn the tide on criminal predators is fueled in part by my personal experience as a child sex trafficking victim. For decades, I've been a voice for the voiceless, but I need more voices, your voice, to help bring justice to those who sell human beings for a profit. Voices Against Trafficking is a national and international partnership made up of individuals, businesses, law enforcement, nonprofits, survivors, and more who are dedicated to winning this fight. One of our members, Kathy Haddam, says, One voice has tremendous power, but when voices unite collectively to combat human trafficking and sexual exploitation, an unstoppable movement is born. Add your voice by clicking join at VoicesAgainstTrafficking.com. Together, we can be one voice for the voiceless. This is The Hard Question. I'm Blanquita Cullum. My guest is the president of the Hispanic Leadership Fund, Mario Lopez, an advocacy group looking out for so many folks, especially the Hispanic community. It promotes liberty, opportunity, and prosperity for all. It is nonpartisan. And I'm looking back to Mario's very influential background. He was honored by Newsmax magazine as one of the 50 most influential Latino Republicans, they called him a strong voice for Latino interests and Republican ideals. But you've really worked across the aisle on that, Mario, to try to make sure that both sides can come together for the community. You've been in, in the Washington area how long now, Mario? Oh, boy, uh, 22 years. Yeah, well, we both age each, we age each other when we say that, right? <laughs> right. But you, you worked uh, uh, with the uh, Senate Republican Task Force on Hispanic Affairs. You were appointed by Orrin Hatch, and then you served in the U.S. House of Representatives as the executive director of the Congressional Hispanic Conference, which was a Republican caucus. How active is the Hispanic caucus now, Mario? Is it as active as it used to be? The Hispanic Conference, unfortunately, has uh, did dwindle in numbers, um, you know, with some retirements and some folks who lost re-election and, and things like that. Um, but there's still, you know, a handful of, of members there, and, and we're always looking for ways, you know, now from the Hispanic Leadership Fund perspective as an outside group, we're always looking for ways to increase those numbers to do whatever we can. Um, but also, you know, of course, communicating with 
with the community on free market policies and promoting those principles that you outlined, uh, liberty, opportunity, and prosperity. But you know, Adia, it's funny, uh, and funny in a curious way, not funny, haha, but in a curious way, because how the Hispanic members of the Congress from both sides of the aisle used to be able to sit down and they could really talk to each other on issues that affected their constituency. But you have had some progressives in there like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, that have pretty much divided the lines where it's like your side against my side, I can't talk to you. Has what is that affecting the way you do your business? Yeah, I mean, we have noticed that, you know, in the last few years, and it's not just uh, from one side or another, frankly, it's both. And it's bigger than just involving the Latino community. Um, it, it's something that affects the entire Congress. And look, I mean, I certainly have very strong views on what my preferred policies are. Um, and I'm, you know, make no bones about it. I support free markets and um, you know, a, a limited government and, and, you know, you name it, right? Those, those typical things uh, that we see on the center right. So um, I get it, right? I mean, we all have our, our principles and we want to do that. But at the same time, look, I mean, one side cannot get everything that they want all the time. I mean, that's just, that's not democracy, right? That's one party rule, which is the opposite of democracy. Uh, and so we think that there, first of all, needs to be a recognition of that basic fact from people on both sides of the aisle. Um, and then, uh, you know, willingness to just come together and say, okay, well, look, we may disagree on certain things, but let's try to find some common ground. And even if it's small, even if it's, you know, seemingly not as significant as other things, just start working on solving some problems that the facing the country uh, in a bipartisan way and, and, you know, people can get whatever they can, right? Compromise that word that has become such a dirty word on both sides. And, you know, then come back and fight for the other stuff that you want another day after another election or, or and make your case to the American people. Well, you know, Mario, I'm thinking about the concern and I, and I brought this up at the beginning because I think there's a misunderstanding about who the community is. Uh, you know, if you're dealing with Latinos that are from Florida, Latinos from New York, Latinos from San Diego or LA are different from Latinos in a way from Brownsville, Texas and San Antonio and even El Paso. And uh, there, there are different ways that they may perceive uh, who the community is, but in some ways, um, members of the Congress just think of them as just a monolithic group and with similar needs. And I think that to me, that spells disaster. Right, right. No, no that's, we see this again. And this is, uh, you know, to the point of cliche now. I mean, we always say Latinos are not a monolithic community, not a monolithic voting bloc. Um, and there are very real differences a lot of times and these perceptions and geography, country of origin, age, generation, you know, how long your family has been here um, in, in New Mexico and Colorado, they're, well, everywhere, but there, those are two states that come to mind where, you know, there are families that have been in, in those states for hundreds of years, right? Right. And then you have newer arrivals, recent immigrants, first generation American, like myself, like know, all these different. You and I grew up around the same area. 
you and I grew up in San Diego and then later I moved to Texas, but you know, I had a grandmother that lived in Tijuana. My mother was a Mexican citizen. You know, we, we had similar background because you grew up in San Diego. Right. And that's radically different than, um, you know, play other places. Right. So all of those things are, are things that take into account. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons that a lot of times these folks call on us, you know, to be able to say, you know, how do I talk to my constituents? Um, and, you know, something we're always happy to, you know, advise folks on, including members of Congress and others. Um, and it's, it is something that has to be taken into account. Does the Hispanic Leadership Fund have to consider now this great influx of Latinos or people identifying as being Hispanic coming across the border uh, right now in the thousands, in some cases, hundreds of thousands being taken around to different locations um, in the United States? Is there a sense of... Um, anger even by by Latinos that have lived in this country or come across and gotten their citizenship the old-fashioned way? Is there a bitterness? And do people come to you because you're the leadership fund and foundation? Right. Well, there, I mean, there's definitely frustration with a lot of the immigration and refugee and, and, and asylum, uh, you know, political and, and, and legal battles that are, that are happening right now. Um, and I think the the recognition again something that is very hard for politicians for whatever reason to accept is that the best thing that they can do to actually solve this issue instead of just yelling at each other about it is to create a functioning system for legal immigration. Right. Well, most people don't know that right now it takes fifteen to twenty years to immigrate legally, and it is a bureaucratic nightmare. And if anything, that's something that Republicans should, you know, be completely willing to fight against is, is bureaucracy and government red tape, right? Are they though? Are they willing to do it or have they gotten, you know, are they scared? Are they scared by the AOCs? They're not, I mean, they're not scared by the AOCs. I think they're, uh, you know, frankly, lazy sometimes in, in how they want to think about this issue. You know, they want to just go on TV and, you know, yell at the other side. And look, I mean, pointing out where the other side's wrong. I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But again, at the end of the day, your job is there as an elected official to help solve these problems. Right. And when you look at it from that perspective, which is a very conservative perspective, by the way, to say, like, we're going to go after government red tape and bureaucracy. Right. And so you can flip the incentives. Right now, the incentives are all backwards. People don't, you know, want to wait 20 years to immigrate legally and they end up crossing illegally. Now, let me be clear, like you, right? Like that doesn't excuse that they're crossing illegally, okay? Right. That's not what I'm trying to say. But what it does mean for elected officials is to say, hey, we as a country, this is not benefiting us. It's not benefiting them. It's not benefiting any of our constituents. Let's flip those incentives around. Right. And you would see tremendous benefits from that. Not only could we vet people properly who are coming across, but then with a functioning system of legal immigration, the people who are who do cross illegally, we can focus like a laser on them because those are the real bad people, the human traffickers, the drug right. smugglers. You know, those folks are the real bad folks who 
we definitely want to target and not the, you know, kind of more traditional migrants who come the way every other wave of, of immigrants have come. Well, not, they're not the, like the Cesar Chavez migrants that used to come to be the, like the farm workers that used to come across. Uh, it was a different time. But the question that makes me, and you raise again, another very thought-provoking issue, and that is, Mario, is it really become a skin color issue that we're afraid to label someone as being a bad guy or a bad person because we don't want to be labeled as someone who could be considered a racist? I mean, we have people coming across, and you're exactly right, you've got Border Patrol that are putting their lives on the line, many of them Hispanic themselves, a great percentage of them. But they're being identified as the bad person. And I'm wondering, is that, I mean, to me, that seems very relevant. Well, I mean, I think that the, the focus should be on, you know, what people's intention and behavior is, right? And that's why it's okay to vet people Correct. who are coming into the country, right, to immigrate. Um, and, you know, because that's based on what they're doing and what their aim is. And are they, do they have a job? Are they looking for a job? What is their, their background? Do they have a criminal past? All those sorts of things, right? And the behavior of the cartels and the human trafficking is something very, very different. And, you know, in many cases, you know, people have records and they have, you know, past histories and all these things. And that's why it would be so much better to focus 98, 99, 100% of, of the Border Patrol's uh, resources and ICE's resources on those folks and not the guy who's going to come to start a small business, who's looking for opportunity, who's, look, who's looking for the very same things that waves of Italian and Polish and German immigrants Absolutely. and all those other things. More with Mario when we come back. We're going to walk you through if you've got an issue about this. I have Mario give some advice. I'm Blanquita Cullum. This is The Hard Question. Not everything that's reported on television is true, but it ought to be. NTD, a New York-based global television network, is independent, reliable, and fact-based. We don't decide where the news happens. What we do is cover it. Check out NTD and you'll know. We believe in the strength of our nation and the hope in our shared humanity. NTD broadcasts uplifting and inspiring programs that enrich your life and bring you joy. Turn on NTD, America's television legacy in the making. Find your local channel at ntd.com slash TV or call 680-201-4999 or call 680-201-4999. Mario Lopez joining me here on The Hard Question. I'm Juanquita Cullum. Mario is the president of the Hispanic Leadership Fund. It's an advocacy organization. He's trying to help you make sure that if you have your money, that the government doesn't get it all and you're protected. And I, I'm, I'm telling you, Mario, before we even get into this, make sure that you give everyone your uh, online address or how you want people to go to, to the Hispanic Leadership Fund so that they can check it out if they have questions and contact you. Yeah, thanks, Marquita. I mean, the easiest way, I think, to start is uh, on, on the web, hispanicleadershipfund.org. 
from there you can people can connect through our you know twitter and facebook and all that good stuff all right so if someone is concerned if they let's say they have a pension or they're concerned that their monies will be affected by some ruling of the government what should they be doing walk us through this again mario right well uh yes going back to this uh, proposed fiduciary regulation i mean the best thing that they can do at this point is to contact their uh, representatives at the federal level their members of congress and say, hey, I know that the Department of Labor is looking to try to reinstate this. It's a bad idea. It's going to hurt my retirement savings. Please, you know, um, do what you can as a member of Congress to, to be against this, to tell the White House it's a bad idea. Um, and, you know, the, the thing is that we have the data and that to back it up. I mean, we did this study that I keep referring to very in-depth um, by people who are way smarter than I am. And uh, they analyze all this and the effects are real and they're very harmful on low and middle income folks. All right. So I want to try to do a, a, a step by step on this because, you know, many people have never contacted a member of Congress and uh, they may not even know. I mean, because members of Congress have staff members that work in every aspect of any, you know, whether it's financial, whether it's the Hispanic community whether it's state issues, local issues, whatever, how do they actually get started? And they say, okay, thank you so much, Mr. Lopez. That's great advice. I've never done it before. How do I get them to listen to me and pay attention to me? That's a great question. Yeah, you're right. There are a lot of people for that um, you know, have it, aren't in the, in the habit of doing this kind of thing. Look, the easiest thing that people could do is look up their, their representative. And that if you type into any search, any uh, search engine on the web, how do I find my representative in Congress? Um, there are many pages out there where you can just put in your zip code and it'll tell you who your representatives are. And um, you know, looking for them by name will get you to their phone number. Um, that's all public information. And you can- And here's the secret. Here's the secret on that too. If you're dealing with a member of Congress, they have a couple of offices. They have one that's in the nation's capital, but they also have an office or offices in the district. So in cases that uh, where you may not be able to reach them in the nation's capital, you can talk to their district office and talk to the people that are running the office because the, the Congress people, whether it's a congressman or a congresswoman, they go back to their districts frequently. And that way, maybe that's a, a better hook into getting a, a more of a response from them right away. Sure. Look, either will work. I mean, uh, if, if nowadays it's you know easier with cell phones and things, but if for some reason you don't want to call Washington, D.C., yeah, absolutely. Calling their district office. Um, and then in both cases, what you're going to get is you're going to get a member of the staff. You're not gonna, you know, the member of Congress is not gonna answer the, their phone. That's just, you know, not, uh, they're busy doing other things. But um, but you get a member of the staff and all you have to do is tell them, and this goes for whether it's this rule or any uh, legislation or anything that's that's in the congressional purview, be able to say, look, my name is so-and-so, I'm your constituent, I'm calling about this issue. I think this is, you know, a bad idea or maybe a good idea for other things. Um, and I want to let you know that. And I want, uh, you know, my representative to understand that I'm his constituent and I'm uh, against this or, you know, whatever it is. 
right? And look, believe me, I mean, having worked as a staff member, as you pointed out, Blanquita, it seems like it's futile, but trust me, members of Congress and their staff take these phone calls and emails very seriously. They log in, um, you know, this is the issue. We've had X number of callers be in favor of it and Y number of callers be against it. And that's something that's talked about every day in these offices. So it does make a difference. It really does. And Mario, in fact, I have actually sat in offices where they were getting bombarded with calls on a particular issue. And uh, you're sitting there counting one, two, 45, 50, 60, 70, 80 calls. I mean, if they get over 100 calls on a certain issue, man, they're quick to act on it. So I think it's important through like groups like the Hispanic Leadership Fund to be able to completely understand what the issue is and how it affects you. And then not to be sitting on the sidelines to get involved and to take an active participation in your own life by calling these members of Congress. Because sometimes, honestly, Mario, we forget they work for us. That's right. Even if they're Democrats or Republicans and you're a Democrat or Republican, they still work for you. Absolutely. And as long as I think people are, uh, you know, respectful, even if they're passionate, even if they're adamant, right, whatever, you're fired up a little bit, that's okay. But as long as people are, are respectful um, and make their point in, in a very succinct and, and easy way, I think, uh, you know, that's the best thing to be heard. And as I said, uh, you know, members of Congress and the staff, they take this input very seriously, they tally it up. And it is, you know, there are many things that we can improve in our democracy these days, uh, but this is something that people should, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, look back and be thankful on because this input, you know, it does make a difference. People do listen to you. So what's the clock on this? What is the time frame? What's the clock on this? How much time do we have to make a difference to be able to encourage those members that uh, could be making a decision on voting one way or the other? Well, we are hearing that it's going to be a few weeks, a matter of weeks when for the Department of Labor to uh, kind of make this official. Um, so there's no time like the present. I'd say, uh, you know, if you, you know, agree that this is a bad idea, um, you know, to, uh, to call, make your voice heard and let people know that, uh, you know, that, where you stand. Well, we're going to hope that people start reaching out to you at the Hispanic Leadership Fund. That's hispanicleadershipfund.org. Do I have that right? That is correct. And, uh, uh, you know, do you ever come out to any of the states and meet with any of the, the folks in, around the United States dealing with issues in the Latino community, or is it more really re- relying on, on you here in Washington, D.C.? Well, absolutely. Well, we're based um, in, in Washington, D.C., but I do, um, you know, make the rounds across the country traveling uh, to, you know, a lot of states and, and, and a lot of uh, cities where the Latino community is key. Um, everything from my hometown of, of San Diego to uh, to Texas, to Florida, up into to Denver and Chicago and, you know, wherever, um, wherever it is that we can set up events or, or have things that, that I need to be at. Um, I do make the rounds. And of course, that slowed down a little bit last couple of years, but looking to speed that up again soon. 
So I've got the Latino community with a Latino fund bringing up the controversial question, Latino or Latinx? I mean, honest to goodness. <laughs> we'll talk about that the next time you're on the show. Mario Lopez, you're the best. Great to have you on the show. Uh, president of the Hispanic Leadership Fund. Join us again soon. I'm Blanquita Cullum, and thank you for joining us here on The Hard Question.